what I'm going to talk about is evolution since Sir Thomas Gresham. Most people see evolution as something that takes place over millions of years. And Darwin certainly never thought that he'd see it in action. Now we can certainly see it in action. And even in the 500 years since the death of Sir Thomas Gresham, um, we've uh, seen a lot of evolution going on in, in ourselves, in the animals and plants around us. And indeed, even in a period of 10 years or so, we've sometimes seen quite a lot of evolution going on. So that's what I'm going to talk about. First of all, I'm going to talk about the changes that have happened in London itself. And then I'm going to go on and talk a little bit about the changes that have taken place in the plants and animals of London and indeed of England and perhaps elsewhere since Sir Thomas Gresham's birth, um, or even death. Um, um, and then I'm going to take a long look into the past at our own evolution. And I have to say there have been some completely startling discoveries, and I use the word, uh, uh, I think, responsibly, in our own evolution that have come from the new ability to extract ancient DNA or fossil DNA, which has now become a more or less standard procedure. And it's really almost completely altered our view of the way that the British became what they are. Uh, and how uh, the British population emerged. Okay. Well, there's Sir Thomas, um, uh, the, the sign of the golden grasshopper, and uh, he was an economist, and in fact, an awful lot of ideas in modern evolutionary biology do come from economics. They have to do with costs and benefits and uh, reciprocal arrangements and that kind of stuff. And you can see some of that thinking, actually, in some of his own talk. But I'm not going to concentrate on that aspect of things. He was, his, um, I was, it wasn't quite clear to what I was going to talk about when I started writing this thing, which, in fact, was on Sunday morning. And I've, just, <laughs> uh, I've spent most of the time since then desperately trying to get up to, get up to speed. Um, uh, but I, I saw the answer when I realized that his personal sign was a grasshopper. And I thought I had the perfect uh, uh, contents for my talk because I once spent several years working on the grasshopper races of, uh, races of a grasshopper called Podisma in the, um, in the, in the, in the French Alps. And I looked at uh, a zone of hybridism between two kinds of chromosomal race there. And I thought the audience would be fascinated by that. But, <laughs> but then I thought that would be too exciting and might cause riots. So I'd try and, I thought I'd try and wire, wire it a bit. Okay. I, um, okay. So what's happened in London since Sir Thomas Gresham's day? Well, obviously, an awful lot. Um, there it is, a small town, a uh, population of a few thousands. Um, and since then, it's grown a bit. This is London from space, and of course it's grown dramatically since that time. And it's a big city in the European context. Of course, in the world context, it's a very moderate city. There are many, many cities in Africa and elsewhere which are much, much bigger. But well, I, I spent 10 years in Scotland, and this, um, this um, slide gives me great pleasure. It just shows how irrelevant Greater Glasgow is compared to London. And London is as big as all those places put together. I also spent my school days in, on Merseyside, and uh, the South Bank seems the best place to put it, I have to say. Okay. Uh, so London's big, and it's getting bigger. It's uh, interesting, uh, oh, until about 1990, about 19 years, about, about, about uh, two decades ago, um, um, uh, uh, two, more than two decades ago, London was shrinking. And in fact, the London plan of those days was to plan for a decrease in population, which was, was of course, a complete mistake and error. And since then, it's been growing, and it's been growing fast. The fastest growth was in, uh, was in uh, well, very fast growth has been in, two, 20, was in 2019. The fastest was in 2015. It's slowing down a bit, but it's going to continue to grow until perhaps in 2035, it's going to have about 10.5 million people, up from the 9.2 million who live there today. So it's a big, it's a big city. Um, and it's a kind of microcosm of evolution. Well, what is evolution? Well, evolution is what Darwin called descent with modification. Descent, the passage of, inf of, inf of information in, from one generation to the next. Modification, the fact that that passage is imperfect. Um, and we can replace that and rephrase that in modern terms as genetics plus time. Because we pass on genes to the next generation uh, through DNA, and DNA is copied imperfectly, errors or mutations build up, and evolution is inevitable. It's simple. It's so simple, in fact, it could almost be physics. Um, uh, <laughs> the, 
That's a joke, by the way. Um, um, okay. But Darwin had another idea, which was natural selection, which we can see in action all around us. Um, natural selection inherited differences in the ability to reproduce, to pass on genes. So if you have a genetic variant that makes it more likely you will stay alive, will find a mate, and will have more offspring than your neighbors, then that gene will become more common, and in time, Darwin thought, new forms of life um, would emerge. And he used all kinds of evidence for his, uh, uh, his ideas, some of which I will use, and particularly he used an, an awful lot of, on, uh, of geographical evidence. He used a lot of evidence from domestic animals and a lot of evidence from geography. Everybody knows about his visit to the Galapagos, where he spent only five weeks, in fact, um, but uh, that gave him the germ of his idea. And it turns out that that idea of um, domestication, variation in artificial conditions, uh, which is his chapter one, and the geographical idea, which forms the first sentence of The Origin of Species. When aboard HMS Beagle as naturalist, I observed some peculiarities in the distribution of the animals and plants of South America, the first words of The Origin. Uh, it turns out that both those um, insights are very, very important today. Uh, the, evolution in artificial condition in farms and cities, and overwhelmingly geographical movement and change on a scale which we had never previously imagined. Okay, so we've seen that London has changed, London has grown, and patterns of birth and death in London have changed dramatically, which means, in fact, the patterns of natural selection have also changed. If we go back to Thomas Gresham's day in the 1540s or so, you'll see high death rates uh, per 100,000 and, um, and high birth rates. In fact, that pattern went on uh, through the times of the plagues in the 1600s, um, and then birth rate, the uh, death rates rose, as you can see then. Birth rates rose dramatically, but very quickly, both of them have uh, converged at the same low level. So the pattern of growth, greater growth now is rather low. And that's what we call the demographic transition. And that's the, the shift from high birth, high death, to high birth, low death, and then back to low birth, low death. And that's almost universal across the world. It's happened in China, it's happened in India. The one place it hasn't happened is in Africa, and that's going to have some quite big long-term um, long implications. The other thing, of course, that's happened in London and elsewhere across the world uh, more recently than in, um, in, um, in Gresham's day is what has been rather flippantly described is, the, is what has been rather flippantly described as a geological era called the Anthropocene. I've heard my uh, geological friends call it the obscene because it doesn't make any sense. Um, but uh, the point of a geological era, it's got an identifiable start and an identifiable finish. And the question is, when can you identify the start of the Anthropocene? Some people say with the atom bombs, some people say with, uh, uh, with carbon from smoke, some people say at the time of agriculture. Uh, but if we just say it happened in the last hundred years, at a rough guess, uh, there have been dramatic ecological changes since then, changes in the environment, which you're no doubt familiar with in general, but are on a scale that many people don't realize. The population of the world has increased from 1.8 billion to almost eight. The numbers of fish in the sea are down by more than half, okay? The number of wild vertebrates, mammals, uh, frogs, toads, and birds, is down by 80%, and that's a dramatic drop. 10% um, of the soil, the organic matter of the soil, which we need to grow for food on, has been depleted, washed away, or simply over cultivated. Temperatures are, uh, is up by almost a degree, and it's going up fast. Sea levels have written by uh, point, by 0.2 of a metre, which is really quite a lot if you live on a, on a, on a flat coastal shore. Uh, the oceans are 25% more acid. The uh, Green ba Great Barrier Reef is dissolving away as a result. And there's been a huge amount of pollution by mercury, salt, smoke, and more. So things have changed. But patterns of population growth have changed um, in parallel. What's happened is the world population has grown. It's uh, estimated by 2100, it'll be about 11 billion. That estimate's actually coming down a bit uh, because the demographic transition is happening so quickly. But the pattern, the, the annual growth rate is dropping rapidly. And that sort of gives us hope that actually we won't read the, reach the uh, bizarre level uh, levels once predicted. I, 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 I knew Paul Ehrlich who wrote the population bomb uh, in the 60s, 
Um, he made a huge amount of money out of that book, incidentally. And I remember asking him once at Stanford, what did you do, rather rudely, as a young uh, uh, academic, I said, what did you do with all the money you made with that book? Was, you know, all the pollution was going to happen, we were all going to die and starve. And he said, oh, I bought a private jet, he said. I thought, God, <laughs> <laughs> I thought, God only in America. Um, OK, anyway, but that, he confidently believed that the world would be uninhabitable by the year 2000, and he was wrong. OK, uh, thank goodness for that. And I think it would remain habitable for a long time yet to come. However, we have evidence that many of the things which are noted in the Anthropocene are on a scale which many people don't realize. This is the carbon dioxide level in the air. Uh, the thick line is uh, the Mauna Loa data. That's the, that's the recorder on the, um, on the volcano in Hawaii. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the thin line is the same kind of data taken from bubbles in Arctic and Antarctic ice. And the levels of carbon dioxide are now up to a level not seen for six million years. Okay. That's had a dramatic effect on temperature, if we go back to Thomas Gresham's day, uh, 14 to 1600s, we were in the Little Ice Age when the Thames froze over. I confidently, confidently believe, having walked here, that it'll return, to, it'll do so tonight, I have to say. <laughs> um, but we can see this dramatic leap of temperature up to 2016. If, you go to 20, if we go to 2018, the figures, 2019, uh, the figures are even more dramatic. Uh, the last four years have been the hottest ever recorded, and 19 of the 20 hottest years ever recorded have been in the 21st century. So the climate change deniers, I'm afraid, are on a losing wicket. Okay? Uh, the ice is melting. That's a picture of the Mer de Glace, which is uh, near, in, it's in the French Alps. And uh, you can see the ice there. Uh, that picture was taken last year. And you see the level of the glacier in 1990, some 20 feet um, above, more than that, 50 feet above where it is today. That means that sea levels are rising fast. And they're rising to such an extent that places like Miami, Miami Beach are confidently predicting that large parts of the city will have to be abandoned within the next 50 or 60 years. Uh, London, too, is a considerable risk. Not only is the sea rising, but uh, the land is sinking. And that's an important part of that procedure. Perhaps the most dramatic picture is this one here. This is a picture of um, the, what had been the uh, bottom of a lake near Peterborough. Okay, and uh, the lake was drained in the 19th century to make farmland. The fens are, are consist of drained lakes, um, and the and the guy who owned the land uh, was curious to know what would happen to the surface. So he put this enormous uh, cast iron. Pole right down through the, um, the soil of the lake bed till it hit the clay at the bottom. That little triangle at the top that was all that could be seen in those years. Since then, the amount of so soil lost has been equivalent to about five meters of soil. Because what's happened is that the uh, oxygen has got in before it had been, had no oxygen, and it's just been turned. The soil, the earth, the ground has just blown away, and that's happening all over the world. Uh, uh, one of the things which has certainly happened, and it's a rather familiar tale, but it shows the power of natural selection when matters change, is that things have got much dirtier. Here's John Evelyn in 1661 complaining about the smoke in London in 1661. And famously, of course, it, became, it got to its worst um, in, the in the 1950s. That's the Bankside Power Station. And I remember um, on my first visit to St. Paul's, which must have been about then, or maybe a bit later than that, looking out from the on the grand balcony at the top, and seeing the Bankside power station smoking away everywhere, everywhere was black. Of course, now it's the, now it's the Tate Modern, and everywhere is scrubbed clean. And in 1952, there was a giant smog, um, which, killed tens of th which killed thousands and thousands of people, and the air was cleaned up. Uh, of course, evolution had noticed that the air was getting dirty. Uh, everywhere was indeed black. That's a classic evolutionary monument to vandalism. Thank God they're knocking down the tower blocks that replaced it. But what they're going to put in there instead is probably going to be even worse. Uh, remember, UCL was black. University of College London was black when I arrived there some years ago. Uh, the famous case of that, which I'll skip over because I'm sure you're all pretty familiar with it, is this thing, the peppered moth. Okay? Um, and the peppered moth is a light-colored moth. In, in generally, 1848, in Manchester, a single black moth was observed. And it was a great treasure, because it had never been seen before. Um, and as you can see, there's a great difference in the degree of camouflage of the two forms. In the middle, on a green uh, chlorella-covered trunk, you can see them both. On the top, on a black, smoky trunk, you can just see 
uh, clearly the white form. Just above it to the left is the black one, and the opposite is true uh, on a lichen-colored um, um, uh, trunk at the bottom. I can never find the lichen-colored one, uh, the white one on the lichen, but take it, it from me. It's down to the right and below the black one. Um, and there was a dramatic shift in the pattern of uh, distribution of that gene um, within really a very few years. This, this was in the 1950s. You can see that big cities with all of that smoke uh, had up to 100% of melanix. Uh, London was 100% black moths by then. Um, the air was cleaned up after the 1950 disaster, and very quickly the incidence of that gene disappeared. It just shows, and it's familiar though it is, it just shows that evolution is a very dynamic process. And that happens again and again and again. And even many other creatures in cities have changed to deal with changed circumstances, some of which are really quite unexpected. Um, uh, Whoops, someone left. Uh, uh, for example, I, when I first moved to Islington, to London 40 years ago, I lived in, uh, found a flat in Islington for a very moderate rent. Uh, my first night there, um, I discovered to my dismay that it was completely infested with bedbugs. Uh, however, all I had to do was to go and buy some powder and sp spray it around the place, and it killed the bedbugs. Well, now the Express, which never exaggerates anything, um, <laughs> says... Uh, blood-sucking super insects becoming resistant, blood-sucking super bed bugs. And they're right, bed bugs are now resistant to everything. Fortunately, I could never afford to move back to Islington now, so it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And you can see the rise of resistance since the 1940s in, in insects and in plants. Um, you can see the spread of antibiotic resistance. You can see, uh, in, in, interestingly, that we are on the last antibiotic and the, um, the drug companies are not interested in making any more because there's no profit in them. So, you know, things may well get worse. But again, that's evolution very much in action. As I said, there are some, some less familiar cases. This is a bizarre but nevertheless fairly convincing case of what happened to, uh, to, um, to a bird in the southern United States called the Cliff Swift. The Cliff Swift began to move into cities in the 19, about the 1970s, okay. It, it nested on skyscrapers and that kind of stuff. And what happened was that large numbers of the birds, which often dive down to the ground level to catch insects, were killed by cars, okay. And what you find is, if you measure their wings, it turns out that the ones with, um, the, the ones with um, long wings are killed by cars much more than the other ones, because they're not as nimble. They can't zigzag out of the way. And if we look at the number B, you'll see that the wing length of those killed by cars, the black lines, are much uh, longer than those that survive. And you can see in C that over a period of, from 1984 to 2012, the average wing length um, went down by about uh, three or four millimeters. So even birds can respond rather quickly to that thing, that kind of thing. Because things could, matters go further because we can see new species emerging in, um, in uh, cities in, within, life, within our own lifetimes. Darwin's book is called The Origin of Species, but in fact it doesn't really have much about the origin of species in it. It's about natural selection, and variation, and that kind of stuff. But now we know a lot about it. And there's one London species you may have heard of, the London underground mosquito. Okay? And the London, London underground mosquito, which has got its own Latin name, Culex molestus, the irritating, the irritating culex, um, uh, is closely related to, uh, to a, um, a, a surface species called Culex pipiens. Um, and in the 19th century, it began to move underground. And as more and more basements were opened up, as the tube was built, this thing moved underground. And since that time, it's changed in many ways. For example, it bites mice rather than people. Um, it doesn't need a blood meal before it lays its first eggs. It, the, 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 land, the surface form uh, has to mate in swarms. This can mate in just pairs. And if you give it a choice of mating with its own kind or the surface form, they avoid each other. And there are also DNA differences between them. So that in only a couple of centuries, a brand new species of mosquito has emerged. Okay. Um, now, that's a mosquito, which is a small creature, and that's happened almost by accident. But human activity has also done an enormous amount to change the fate of much larger creatures, again, within historic times. Um, here's uh, 
this is an elephant, which is a big animal. Um, and you can see that, uh, um, uh, that the, the, the average tusk length um, has declined in both, in both males and in, and in females, males at the top, females at the bottom, uh, uh, between the 1960s, the black spots, and, the 19, and 2013, the red spots. Uh, the, obviously, a bigger tall elephant has bigger tusks than a small short elephant, but there's been quite a dramatic drop in tusk length. Okay. Uh, what's that due to? It's due to the fact that hunters have killed. They've killed half of all African elephants, um, and they've killed preferentially those with big tusks, and so natural selection has walked, walked in, and emerged, we've got on the right uh, whole herds of elephants without tusks now. Uh, they've now managed to stop people killing elephants with tusks, and it'll be interesting to see whether the tusks come back again. Okay. Um, we, too, have actually changed through uh, our domestication of ourselves. Uh, um, uh, no, sorry, here's another one of the same kind of thing. Another thing which has changed, as I said, more than half the fish in the sea have been, uh, are now missing, and the food fish, even more, are now missing. Uh, what that means, that for, and that means in turn that when you take a fish like a cod, um, if you look at very heavily fished um, uh, cod uh, regions, the, the, the fish involved um, now become mature when they're much smaller than they used to be, because if they get much larger, they'll be killed. They'll be picked up and killed and eaten by the nets, and they also mature much more quickly. And that's another reason why fisheries yield is going down. Evolution has changed the way the fish reproduce. Uh, and there are, interestingly enough, it's also done quite a lot to ourselves. Many, we, we eat, farmers eat much, much more starch than uh, hunter-gatherers and fishing peoples do. Uh, you know, I mean, anybody who likes McDonald's has a very starchy, has a very starchy diet. And you can digest starch, partly, with an enzyme in your spit that's called salivary amylase. And it's one of those many genes that can multiply its copies in your DNA. Okay? And farming only started, let's remind ourselves, about 10,000 years ago. And you can see that places with high starch, like uh, the Japanese, the Hadja, and the European Americans, uh, the black lines, have more copies of the starch-digesting genes than people with a low-starch diet, like various African hunter-gatherers tribes um, who don't eat much starch. Um, so that's evolution, rather banal evolution. But bizarrely enough, the same thing has happened to the dog. Okay, uh, dog breeds that come from farming parts of the world, they're the ones in, in, in brown, uh, have more copies of that gene than dog breeds that originate um, in places where people still hunt or they fish. Uh, the dog has adapted itself to being domesticated in another way, which is common to many anim pet animals. It's the stupidest of mammals, probably. Uh, these are the number of brain cells dogs have got, domestic dogs. <laughs> and you can see, if, if you want to be a pet, it pays to be dim, OK? All right. So all this definitely goes on. There's no question of it. And it also goes on in the wild. We talked about sea level rise, OK? And the sea level has risen dramatically. The glaciers have moved back dramatically. And the fish of the sea have moved forwards, north and south, in order to, f to follow the rising and the retreating waters. And one of the fish that's done that is the stickleback. And the stickleback is, was initially a marine fish. It lived in the sea and was eaten by many, many predators. And at the, at the top there, you can, sorry, on the, uh, at the top there, you can see the marine stickleback, which has got great big spines and great thick plates on its side. Um, it managed to get into fresh water. And as soon as the ice went, sicklebacks were among the very few marine fish that could get in there. The predators, for some reason, couldn't get into those, those lakes and streams. And very quickly, it began to evolve. It lost its, um, it lost its, spine, its spines, it lost its, its plates, um, and it turned into a much calmer kind of animal because it didn't have to protect itself. And that happened with amazing speed. These are independent places where people have looked at, at marine and freshwater Sicklebacks, uh, the freshwater ones emerged from the local marine ones. They differ genetically at the DNA level, but every single one has done the same thing. So that evolution has reproduced that experiment again and again and again. Well, let's move now to talking a little bit more about what, what we now know about our own evolution. Of course, we know a lot about human evolution. Um, Darwin didn't know anything about human evolution. He wrote a book in 1871 called Sexual Selection and the Descent of Man. And it's very 
unsatisfactory when it comes to the descent of man because he has, to, he has nothing to do apart from speculate. It's obvious that humans and chimpanzees are rather similar. Um, Queen Victoria uh, went to the zoo, London Zoo, <coughs> in the 1840s and noted in her diary that the, uh, that the, the chimpanzee, that the uh, orangutan was painfully and disagreeably and frightfully human. Okay, and he didn't like the idea at all. Uh, Darwin picked that idea up, but he knew nothing at all about human fossils. One had, in fact, been found. It had been found in Gibraltar in the 1840s, um, and uh, it was, in fact, a Neanderthal, but uh, it was put in the museum with a label said, uh, saying, um, an ancient Gibraltarian drowned in Noah's flood, which it wasn't. Okay? Um, but now, of course, we know a huge amount about human fossils, but perhaps most strikingly, we know just not just about the, about the, uh, the bones, but the genes, okay? And ancient DNA has become a real, has become a real industry. Uh, one time it seemed even, let me think, 15 years ago, it seemed quite impossible that it would be possible to find large chunks of DNA, the genetic material, in fossils going back many, many thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of years. And the first person who did it, Svante Pabo, people kind of laughed at him and said, you can't have done that, it's impossible. DNA is a very, is a very unstable molecule, you can't, possibly, uh, you can't possibly use it. But now, it turns out it's quite easy. Uh, Svantipabo uh, took DNA from the teeth, inside the teeth of fossil um, uh, specimens, uh, where it was tucked away inside the, uh, the closed uh, tooth. People have now moved on with, to an even better idea. They use the bones of the ear the ear ossicles, the, the little things inside your ear which move around and tell you when you're standing up and leaning over and that kind of stuff. And they too contain DNA which has scarcely been influenced by the outside world. So many, many thousands of, of, of uh, samples of fossil DNA have now been analysed across the world in animals and in humans. And m many people know some of the results. For example, it's uh, well known now that, hum that uh, Europeans have some of their genes that come from Neanderthals. Uh, Africans have none, uh, people in the Far East have a few, uh, but Europeans have quite a lot of, um, of uh, Neanderthal genes that comes from hybridization between the two forms many tens of thousands of years ago. Uh, the gene for red hair is on a piece of Neanderthal DNA, which I think explains a lot about the, uh, <laughs> about, the, about the personality of the Scots and the Irish in particular. Okay. Um, so that's all well and good, but in the last... Uh, and we can go back a long way. Uh, one of my colleagues at UCL last year was part of a group that sequenced the, the ancient DNA of, of, uh, of, of Cheddar Man. Uh, this is Cheddar Man, an image of him, rather, imagine, rather imaginative image, sitting on the uh, steps in the Natural History Museum with Charles Darwin beaming from the top. And the thing which was startling about Cheddar Man, it was completely clear from looking at his ancient DNA, 10,000 years old, um, was that what was clear was that he was black, or at least he was very dark in colour. Okay? We know why that was. Uh, people had only just got into British Isles after the ice had retreated, and they were beginning to lose their pigment because they, having a dark skin in, in Britain's lousy climate was rather gave them a shortage of uh, vitamin D, and so a lot of light-coloured genes quickly replaced the dark ones. But that's in Cheddar Man, and there was a great deal of fuss when Cheddar Man was discovered in the, 19, uh, in the, 19, in the 1890s, was it? So, some, uh, about, that, about the possibility there would be descendants of him alive today. And when this work was done, there were many learned articles in the newspapers uh, claiming that he, that this person or that person or all of us were descendants of Cheddar Man who had lived in Britain uh, 10,000 years before the present. Well, the answer is, well, maybe, because this is really where the startling um, change takes place. It turns out that the British population today has almost no relation at all to Cheddar Man or even the people who lived on the British Isles five or 6,000 years ago. And that comes from a very recent piece of work on ancient DNA. What we've got here is a diagram that shows samples of ancient DNA uh, uh, taken from across much of Europe. We've got one or two from Britain, but there are many more from northern Spain and caves there, lots in Germany. There are many more yet to be found, no doubt. And the dates at the bottom, as you can see, they go from about uh, 2,000 years ago to as much as, as, much as 10,000 years ago. Okay. Um, and what you can do and I'll have to talk you through this, 
is to make a, a diagram uh, which shows the, from the DNA sequences of those ancient uh, remnants, shows the patterns of relatedness of the individuals which you've dug up or obtained from France, Spain, and so on, uh, from Britain in ancient DNA, the patterns of relatedness. And this rather complicated diagram tells us what's going on. Um, I wonder if we have a pointer. No, we don't have a pointer. Okay. Uh, what we've got here is, let's just look at the colored blobs. Okay. What we've got here is a statement that, um, that, uh, that uh, uh, in, 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 uh, in ancient times, Modern European, the population of, of uh, sorry, much of the population of the samples of, um, of DNA which we've got uh, come from, from Eastern Europe and into, into uh, uh, Ukraine and into Russia. And they're shown as yellow, as yellow blobs uh, there. And there, there are various uh, other groups nearby from the Bronze Age, five or 6,000 years old. Um, and they were, the, they, were, the, they were relatively culturally advanced. Um, if you look to the left of that diagram, you'll see groups named as Eastern European hunter-gatherers and Western European hunter-gatherers. And that included, of course, the people of Britain, Ireland, France, and Spain of that time. Okay? Um, and they're quite distinct from the people who lived those yellow blobs, apart from the colored triangles. They're quite different from the people who lived on the steppes and in, in Eastern Europe. Okay? Um, so what are the little, the boring little um, black blobs uh, in the background? They're modern Europeans. And what that tells us is that modern Europeans are almost all descended from the peoples of the steppes of Ukraine and of Western Russia. Uh, now, that's a quite, and that's a quite unexpected finding. In fact, they descend from a group called, what the hell is going on now? It's not called that. They descend from a group called the Yamnaya, okay? And the Yamnaya, or Yamna, uh, you can see where their homeland was, and they were bron early Bronze Age people. They took up the, they took up the uh, ability to uh, work on bronze well before people in Western Europe. And they bred horses. And that gave them an overwhelming military advantage. So what happened was that about five, four or five, 5,000 years ago, the Yamnaya began to invade Western Europe. And they invaded them with enormous success. What actually happened was the Yamnaya genes wiped, the Yamnaya wiped out large parts of the hunter-gatherer population of Western Europe which is probably not particularly abundant anyway. In particular, they wiped out the males, which is what tends to happen in war situations. And if you draw the map of the, of the incidence of Yamnaya genes in Europe today, you'll see that actually an awful lot of British genes um, uh, come from the steppes, even more German genes. But as you go down into Spain and North Africa, almost none do. Okay, so we're basically all Ukrainians, all right? uh, <laughs> which may be a surprise, um, but certainly was a surprise to me. And uh, the effect wasn't small; the effect was big. Uh, it had a, a large effect on the diversity of Europe. This diagram here shows the amount of genetic diversity in fossil DNA, shown by fossil DNA in European populations uh, in, the Stone, in the New Stone Age at the top. And you can see, as you go from place to place in Europe, uh, the amount of difference, and that's the distance apart to the points in those lines, the amount of genetic difference is really quite extensive. Then we begin to move into, into from the Stone Age to the Copper Age, the Chalcolithic, as it's called, uh, and that difference gets less suggesting that people are beginning to move around and replace other peoples. Then in the Bronze Age, it gets less again. And then in the present, it's even, it's even less. And that's all, those last two represent another way of saying that all Europeans are descended from the same, the same group, which we now know to be the steppe peoples, the Yamnaya. And the effect was particularly striking in Britain. Here's a, here's a picture that shows the shift in British genes from fossil DNA at about 2,450 BC, four and a half thousand years ago. And people can date stuff with amazing, uh, amazing accuracy now. And what we've got are the genes um, from the British Stone Age, 
at the top there, there we've got those in blue, okay, and the, uh, the British people in, in the Stone Age had a characteristic set of genes of their own. Uh, the, that's all genes of the blue bars. If you look on the right, you'll see some blue blobs, and they're Y chromosomes, because we can identify Y chromosomes genes quite readily, and they've all got blue blobs. And then in 2450, after that date, everything changed. The red genes are the step genes. So what happened was, in a very short time, in the, so as they joined the, uh, the, uh, what we can think of as the Ukrainian common market, okay, uh, uh, the entire British population, or most of it, was wiped out. Their genes disappeared. Um, as, uh, people estimate 95% of all local British genes were disappeared at that time. And that was particularly true of um, male genes, Y chromosome genes, where something like 99% of all British male chromosomes originate in the steps, okay? Which, again, is perhaps a somewhat startling uh, finding. Um, so what's, that's what happened in the past, uh, massive population re replacement, okay? And that's new because historically when people talked about human evolution, it was a kind of nice... Uh, it was a, a nice, slow train ride across the landscape. The genes moved from person to person or from family to family and kind of diffused across the landscape. And that was the model which held until this kind of work was done in the last two years. Uh, people saw what they thought was a gradual shift in genes from the Middle East to, uh, to the Northwest, and they thought well, that was the farmers getting more abundant and moving across and mating with the hunter-gatherers. So we diluted out the farmers' genes with the hunter-gatherers' genes, and we had this nice kind of liberal coalition going on. Okay? Um, well, it turns out that it really wasn't like that at all, at least in, li in large parts of Europe, and particularly in Britain. There was a massive takeover. So that's a, a startling new insight into what's happening uh, in human evolution. And the question is, is it, has it happened elsewhere? And the answer is, it, it appears to have done so. If you go to India, for example, you find big, big differences between the different Indian castes from the top uh, the Brahmins all the way down to the untouchables, uh, the Dalits, as they're now called, uh, the big genetic differences between them, and they represent the fact that there was a massive movement of people from Iran into <coughs> India, or it's now Iran, into India, who brought their genes with them and, uh, and uh, took the topmost parts of society. Uh, they didn't wipe them all out, but they certainly remained dis distinct from them, and it was a mass population movement. Well, the question arises, what's going to happen in the future? Clearly, we're in an era when the, of population movement. Uh, we see that on the news every day. We see people, uh, desperate people, uh, moving from Africa and elsewhere, but we also see, see plenty of people uh, moving uh, from um, elsewhere by air um, and uh, getting, in, getting into... Um, getting into, uh, into, into Europe. And that's had a great effect on the proportion of foreign-born um, individuals in, uh, in, in, in England and Wales, as well as elsewhere. In the 1850s, only about one person in 100 was foreign-born. Um, even in the 1960s, it was only about one person in 30. In 2018, it was about one person in... Eh, it's got a life of its own, this damn thing. Uh, go back. In 2018, it was about one person in eight, and now it's about one person in seven uh, is, um, is foreign-born. In London, it's one in three. Okay? So London has an enormous influx of people from outside. Uh, the interesting thing is, is that's what's making London grow. If it, this is the patterns of movement of people and genes um, into and out of London. The blue bars are people who move out of London into the countryside or the, or the suburbs. The red bars are people, these are, these are British people, Londoners, who move out uh, from the London into the suburbs. And you can see the net movement is strongly to reduce the proportion of those individuals in the population. The red bars are people who come to London from uh, out from, from abroad, many of them, in fact, from Europe, of course, nowadays. And you'll see that what happens there is that, that influx of people from abroad has caused uh, an increase in population. And in fact, that's enough to mean that London population continues to grow. So there has been considerable genetic movement into and out of London. There's no question of that. Um, London, as a result, has become genetically much, uh, has become genetically much more diverse. If we draw... Oh, 
if we draw a map of the proportion of people of different ethnic origin, if you want to use that uh, phrase, um, uh, this is the map of white Londoners who overwhelmingly really uh, prefer to live in, uh, in, in the suburbs, uh, particularly if they drive black taxis. Um, then we have uh, Afri African and Afro-Caribbean Londoners, and you can see that they're concentrated in particular parts of London, um, mainly much more in the centre, historically, as in Brixton, of course. Uh, then we have people of Asian origin who are concentrated in different areas, uh, quite a lot of them over in West London. So clearly there is, there is um, um, uh, an awful lot of new genetic variation. So what's going to happen to all those individuals, to, to all those genes? Is it going to be a case, as some people think, and they might be right, we don't know, that we're going to have, in some sense, a population replacement of the kind that happened in ancient times as the steppe dwellers drove into Britain and replaced its native population. And various alarmists, and they might be right, no, there's no, um, thinks that, well, well maybe all the, the number of Af people of African origin or Asian origin coming in, Islamic groups coming in, means that inevitably there will be a population replacement of some kind in time, perhaps as great or almost as great as that which took place as shown in fossil DNA. Another view is that there will be, is more likely to be um, a population fusion, okay, where people tend to mate, will tend to mate with people um, of different origin. And that's certainly happening. Um, what, in the old days, you can see this from the data on the distribution of genetic differences in the in ancient times, I just showed you. In the old days, people generally speak had or men generally uh, had no had no um, option but to marry the girl next door, and women, uh, uh, women too had little option but to marry uh, the boy next door. Cousin marriages were among the commonest of all. Cousin marriages in some parts of the world still are among the commonest of all. In fact, they got, in some parts of the world, in Pakistan for particular, in particular, uh, they're going up in frequency. And we can see re remnants of that in ourselves. I can ask you um, to do a simple experiment to show that we have a history of inbreeding, as it's called, of cousin marriage. Would you like to, uh, to uh, sh shake the hand, you don't have to, of the person next to you? Do the experiment. For half of you, I have just for half of you, I have just introduced you to your fifth cousin, <laughs> and, and that's true. Okay, um, uh, that means for half of you, you share a great, 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 great grandparent in common. Somebody who lived, roughly speaking, in Darwin's time. So we are, to a considerable extent, still reflecting this history of marriage of relatives. If I were to do that experiment in Pakistan and I'm not sure I would dare to do it, I could point out that I have just uh, introduced half of you to your first cousin once removed, okay? And they're really in bed and getting more so. So that pattern of mating is historically a very common one, that people married relatives. The gene stayed in the community. But it's changed. And you can see that it's changed in, in various ways. And you can see why it's changed. Uh, transport is what brought the genes of the steppe dwellers, the horse, into Britain. In, mo in the modern world, the most important evolutionary event of the last 500 years, without question, was the invention of the bicycle. Okay? Now you could leap onto your bicycle and you could pedal off to the next town and you could marry or meet somebody who, of, of a different ancestry from yourself. Uh, the, the, the Model T Ford took it further and the 747 has taken it further. So, yes. You can do an experiment that shows the power of that. Um, you can ask about marital differences, distances. How far apart was your birthplace from that of your partner, if you have one? I ask my students. Um, and then, at, at least until a, couple of year, a few years ago, the answer was always very clear that, the, that their themselves and their partner were born further apart than their mother and father. Their, their, your mother, their mothers were born uh, and fathers were born further apart than their mother's mother and their mother's father and so on. And the same is true actually in my case. Um, my, myself and my wife who comes initially, who comes from New York, but initially came from uh, uh, the Middle East as a, as a Sephardic Jew. Um, uh, we were born 3,000 miles apart. She was born in Manhattan. I was born in Aberystwyth. Um, um, and uh, my parents, on the other hand, were born three miles apart in two villages in West Wales. I once told the students this, and a very rude student shouted from the back, and it shows. <laughs> um, 
I, do, I, don't know whether he, I don't know whether he was right or not. But that, dis, that dif, distance is going up, okay? Uh, it's a microcosm of movement. As I said, in, in Britain now, about one in eight or so are, 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 are born abroad. If you look at university or college students in Britain, the figure's much higher. And it's clearly the case that many of their relationships are going to develop into permanent and lasting relationships. And I see that at UCL very often. Uh, there is surprisingly little um, separation, there's some without question, uh, between the various ethnic groups and their patterns of association with each other. The big exception to that is people of Islamic origin where they're, where they're, which, have, which still retain what uh, William Blake called the mind-forged manacles of religion. They make choices and many of their choices are determined by their culture um, and that is much less strong in most other groups. So everything is not straightforward but it certainly, it certainly is... is um, it's doing, it's doing something. So what's going to happen? Oh, it's done it again. What's going to happen to the groups of uh, different ethnic origin in London in the coming years? People tend to forget that historically there have been quite a lot of people of African London, uh, origin in London. This is William Hogarth's painting, Noon. You can't really see it. I'll move over. But this, this is an African chap here, okay? And he's just painted, there's an African lady there. And they're just painted as if they were part of the scene, okay? Uh, there were some claims that there was as many as um, in the Gentleman's Magazine, the thing I re regularly read, that there were 20,000 African servants in London, many of whom were, were, um, were, were freed slaves. Uh, here's one of them, Olada Equiano, and Equiano had himself actually been a slave trader, but he saw the light and he became uh, you know, a great uh, campaigner against the slave trade and became quite famous. And there he is, he lived in the, in the, again in the, uh, in the uh, 18th century. Uh, and you can see his uh, rather handsome features there and the green plaque, which I'm delighted, which shows where he used to live in Riding House Street in Fitzrovia, and I'm delighted to be able to tell you, or to discover, as I discovered yesterday, that it's actually on a, a building that was built by UCL, which kind of cheers me up. This is Francis Barber, and Francis, uh, uh, on the left there, uh, painted, painted by Reynolds, allegedly, and he was Dr. Johnson's servant. Um, Dr. Johnson, the great uh, literary, uh, the towering literary figure, he was uh, but, but, uh, Johnson's servant and Johnson was very much uh, dependent on him because Johnson, Johnson was a very eccentric character and he was very very had a very high opinion of Francis Barber uh, and so did Boswell actually he, wrote, he writes very kindly about him not everybody did and, John, and Johnson left him quite a substantial sum of money when he Johnson died Francis Barber married a white woman had two sons um, his so his, uh, uh, his grandchildren, uh, uh, again, married into the general population, uh, and their genes were, as it were, diluted away. Okay? And in fact, here's a the chap who's discovered himself to be a modern descendant of Francis Barber, and it's probably as many as 10% of all British people have got some genes of African origin which stand, descend from that time, or sometimes even earlier. So that the admixture um, process has gone on uh, with, to some quite considerable degree. Uh, you can see that in the streets of parts of London. I have the dubious privilege of living in Camden Town. In fact, I, li I live in, or we live in, we live next door to where to, where, to Amy Winehouse, uh, which is, gives us a, a certain uh, dubious cachet. Um, and it, if, we, if you walk into Camden Town, there are many, many teenagers and so on of clearly mixed ancestry uh, um, um, in the streets. I, I, Camden School for Girls is very close, and the, the group are very abundant there too. And if you look at people of, um, of mixed ancestry, Afro-Caribbean Afro ancestry, for half of them, uh, one, of the, one of the parents is white and one is black. So that half of those marriages um, uh, between the so-called races, the ethnic groups uh, of African, Africans and Afro-Caribbeans and Europeans. And that, at that rate, there will be complete absorption of the two groups into each other within a very few generations. Not what happened at all when Britain was invaded by the peoples of the steppe. Okay. However, there are uh, considerable ba barriers. Uh, let me do... Let me, let me, Put something else into that. So that's what's happening. However, there are, this is going to become much more of a challenge. As I said when we started, when I started, uh, there have been great patterns in the, um, in, uh, in, in the uh, 
uh, patterns of life and death uh, in Britain from high birth rates and high death rates right the way through to low birth rates and low death rates, which are universal everywhere except in Africa. And in Africa, that has not happened and shows no signs of happening, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria, and the like. The mean completed family size in Africa is still five, okay, five children. And of course, healthcare has got much, much better in Africa, so many of those children survive. So this issue of a large influx of individuals from elsewhere is going to continue simply because of population pressure. And we don't know what's going to happen. But at the moment, it looks clear that there is a, a very considerable fusion of groups which will lead to, a, 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 if you want to use the word, a racially mixed population. However, there are some much more powerful barriers to uh, intermarriage of different groups which are based not on um, skin colour or an ethnic group, but on education. And here's a... Some, uh, Go away. God almighty, you've got a life of its own, this damn thing. Here, here we have some data from the States. And the data from, in the, the data from Britain are even more striking, but they, I couldn't find the diagram. Which shows the levels of education of, of partner of people um, of different backgrounds. Uh, from HS minus is dropout of high school, somebody who doesn't finish their education, to high school alone, to, uh, to uh, go to college but drop out. Uh, C is go to college and get a degree, a bachelor's degree maybe. And C plus is to get, that's the dark blue, uh, that's the lighter blue, uh, that's to get, a, um, that's to get a, an MSc or, a, or a, um, uh, even a PhD. Uh, and you can see and the height of the line, the vertical lines, is how, lo how, mo how much more likely than average uh, is it that you will marry somebody of the same educational background as yourself. And the effect is quite striking. If we look at the, the left-hand one, uh, high school minus, both people dropped out of high school, it is, six, it is six and a half times more likely if you drop out of high school that you yourself will marry somebody who dropped out of high school. If we look at the C+, plus, college plus, um, um, you'll see that if you've got a master's degree or a PhD, it is three and a half times more likely that you will marry somebody um, with, uh, with the same qualification. And if you add the purple college, it's probably about six times more likely that you will, if you, that if, then you will marry somebody um, who has got uh, only, a, uh, who dropped out of high school. My wife, as it happened, started a PhD, but didn't finish it. So quite where, quite where we stand in that, uh, in that equation, I don't know. But that's an interesting phenomenon because it's a barrier held not in the skin, uh, but in the education level. And it's got nothing to do with supposed genetic differences like you between, um, between population groups. Because the evidence in London, most of all, is that the groups that do best in school are the children of uh, first-generation children of immigrants, of Afro-Caribbean, African, and, uh, and of Eastern origin. They're the ones that are bringing up London's education levels. So it's a cultural thing. So we are choosing our mates on the basis of culture. So if you want to ensure that we have a happy, harmonious, and homogenous group, uh, what everybody should do is get a PhD. It's obvious, isn't it? <laughs> um, and that's a very appropriate note on which to end the talk, because, of course, Sir Thomas Gresham was himself convinced of the same thing. And he, of course, founded the first university in London, which tried to do the same thing and still does. Thank you. <laughs>